Here reading is chapter 15 of Exodus, beginning at verse 1 through to verse 21. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead into the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them in your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass, brought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver, he has hurled into the sea. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure for many of us, there are songs that are connected to moments in our lives. Uh, perhaps you can think back to 
an exam that you revised for or a first date that you went on that have left you rejoicing and you're never going to forget that particular song. Some songs are like that, but some songs are bigger than that. Some songs are written in response to history. In uh, 1812, British troops attacked Washington, D.C., and they started targeting the port of Baltimore. It was a night of bombardment as the night sky was lit up with all of these rockets on Fort McHenry. There was a young poet called Francis Scott Key who was watching from a distance, wondering what was going to happen. As the morning dawned, he penned a rather famous poem, which I'm going to try not to sing. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming? And the rocket's red glare, the bombs burst in the air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave of the land of the free and the home of the brave? I'm British through and through, but I think it's one of the best national anthems in the world. And one of the reasons that it means so much for our American friends is that it is rooted in history. It's not just an association. It was playing on a loop while I was revising for my physics GCSE. It was a song that came out of the event of that great rescue. And the song that we have just read of Moses and Miriam is like that rather than like whatever was playing when you were studying for your exams. It was written and sung after this greatest ever rescue. And if you're here with us for the very first time, we're absolutely delighted. You've jumped into the middle of one of the greatest rescue stories in the history of the world. Um, And so some of what we have just read might not have made a great deal of sense. But at the point in the story, God has just rescued all of the Israelites from Egypt. They've been prisoners there, slaves, and forced to labor for 400 years. God sent 10 miraculous plagues to break down the resistance of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to lead out two, three million Israelites. And that is the point of this great song happening. But actually, there's more of an adventure that has happened between those ten plagues and the song. You see, after Pharaoh saw all of these Israelites leave, he suddenly realized, I want them back. So he goes chasing after them. And it should have been the easiest win in the history of battles. Because there is these two to three million people who are just wandering away on foot, cornered by a sea that they can't cross, and more than 600, probably many more than that, enormously armored chariots. There's no way that the Egyptians were going to let the Israelites go again. But God intervened. In a miraculous way, God separated the waters of this uncrossable sea so that the Jews could cross on dry land. And as the Egyptians tried to follow to capture them, he brought the waters on top of them to destroy them all. That's the reason the Jews started singing. They they were singing in one sense with even more joy than all of the Americans in Baltimore. Because for the Americans in Baltimore, there were hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many it was, who were fighting that great battle and gave everything that they had in order to secure victory. The Jews didn't lift a finger. 
God displayed his glory. He defeated his enemies and he delivered his people. And that's what this song is all about. That's what I want us to see as we work through it together. There's three things I want to show you. First of all, the Lord is the uniquely majestic and all-powerful God. The Lord, the God of heaven and earth, is the uniquely majestic and all-powerful God. All the way through the plagues, God has been proving that there is no God like the God of the Bible. If you flip back, if you happen to have a Bible, back to chapter 12, God was explaining to Moses what would happen at the Passover. Every firstborn, animal or human, who wasn't protected by the blood of the Lamb, would die. And God says in chapter 12 and verse 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike, from, uh, strike down every firstborn of both animal and people, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Only God is God. So the same thing last week. God's preparing Moses for what's going to happen in the crossing of the Red Sea. And in chapter 14 and verse 18, we read, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, implying and no other. When I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And that's the theme that Moses picks up on in this song. Look in our song, verse 11. There is Moses. He literally structures the sentence by saying, who is like you among the gods, Lord, who is like you, same question, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is like the God of heaven and earth? And Moses is saying, look at the Exodus. Look at the ten plagues. Look at the Passover. Look at the crossing of the Red Sea. There is no God like the God. The Egyptians were the strongest nation in their day. So, everybody thought that therefore the Egyptian gods were the most powerful god in the day because they were the ones who were in charge, so it was thought, of bringing about the Egyptians to be the superpower nation of its day. And God had just destroyed them. Only God is God. He is, in Moses' words, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You get that sense, don't you? If, you? if you've ever had an occasion to sing someone's praise, somebody that you love, or, or a child or a parent that you're just absolutely delighted with, you get to that point in just being so thrilled with them that the words are tumbling out, but you haven't really got enough of a vocabulary to explain how much you love the person or are so thankful for them. This is Moses. He's stretching the bounds of Hebrew to try and explain how glorious God is. He is majestic in holiness. The holiness that is being described here is God's unchanging, eternal, moral purity that sets him as the creator apart from everything else that he has made. There is nothing like God. And he is unapproachable in that purity. It's what makes him awesome in glory. You couldn't hurry into God's presence and just say it was lovely to meet him. In a sense, you would be devastated by his glory. And we've already seen that he's worked these supernatural wonders in Egypt to prove beyond any doubt that only God is God. 
And the rest of the song sings of two ways that God demonstrates his unique majesty and power. The first one, point number two, the Lord justly judges all his enemies. God had shown himself, verse three, to be the warrior. The Israelites hadn't done 50% of their rescue. They hadn't done 0.5% of the rescue. They hadn't done 0.005% of the rescue. God, the warrior, had done everything. He'd done it, verses 6 and 12, through his majestically powerful right hand. In Hebrew thought, your right hand was symbolic of your power and your strength. And as we've worked as a church through the events of all of this exodus, you see these repeated contrasts between the hand of the Egyptians, not so strong, and the right hand of God, all-powerful. And what does it do? Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. Don't think facial stubble. Think the chaff that get left behind after a harvest. What's Moses thinking about here? Well, actually two things. Burns fast. If you set light to what is left after a harvest, the flames engulf it in a moment. And there's a sense in which it's the speed of judgment that is what Moses has in mind. But there's something else as well. You see, when, when Moses first came to Pharaoh all those weeks and chapters ago, and said, the God of heaven and earth says, let his people go. Pharaoh's reaction was to make life harder for the Israelite slaves. He commanded his slave drivers, don't give them straw to make the bricks, but keep demanding that they produce the same number of bricks. So what do the Israelites have to do? They have to go and gather the straw for themselves. If you look in chapter 3 and verse 12, it tells us that the Israelites scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. It's one of those poignant reminders of, of the oppression that the Egyptians had put the Israelites under. But for their part, Pharaoh and the Egyptians thought they were a match for God. You get to verse 9 and we've got this clipped, almost military-like commands of what they're going to do in all of their bravado and arrogance. I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, meaning I'm just going to soak up all of the spoils of war that I'm going to capture from them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. What was the warrior lord's response? Verse 10, he breathed on them. That's all it took to inflict devastating judgment on them. Verses 1 and 4, he hurled Pharaoh's army into the sea. They sank, verses 5 and 10, into the mighty waters, and the earth, verse 12, swallowed God's enemies. Devastating description of the just judgment of God on his enemies, but that's not the only way God shows his unique majesty and power. The second way he does it Point number three is the Lord lovingly leads his people to be with him. The Lord lovingly leads his people to be with him. And Moses describes how God does that in four stages. The first one at the very beginning is he, he rescues them from danger. 
So in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my defense. And some translations have got there my song, which is equally fair as a translation in the sense of as God has delivered his people, it brings about this wonderful song of delivery. He's become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Jews there are not focusing on themselves they're not the reason for their song. The reason for their song is that God has delivered them. So what's their power? It's not their mighty hand. It's the knowledge that the omnipotent hand of God is working for them. What is their great hope? It's that he's the one who has saved them. So the first part of this leading is the rescue. But, but then, second part, he lovingly leads them through the rest of the stage. So look in verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them. What's being described is the how God continues to lead the people he's rescued. And it isn't just by his power, though that would be awesome enough. It's by his unfailing love. When Moses wrote this book, he used a Hebrew word, chesed, which means covenant love. It means the love that never changes and never leaves you. It's the kind of love that doesn't depend on what you do as a consequence. It's bound to you. It's a love that doesn't change by the circumstances of whatever else is going on in life. Because it's rooted in the unchanging character of God. A number of years ago, Bible translators in Cameroon were trying to translate the Bible into the language of the, now I don't know how to pronounce this accurately, the word is in English spelled H-D-I, I'm going to say Hidi people in Cameroon. And as they were working through uh, the language, trying to understand it as best they could, they realized that verbs had one of three endings. And in English, we would write them either ending with an I, an A, or a U. And those different endings, as you all know in many other different languages, changed the meaning of the verb. And the Bible translators realized they only knew two of the verb endings for the verb love. So they gathered their translation committee together. And they asked them the first question, could you... Now, the... English transliteration for their verb love is DV, okay? So could you DVI, first ending, could you DVI love your wife? Everybody agreed. Of course you could. That would mean that the wife had been loved, but that the life, the love had gone. Then they asked, well, could you DVA love your wife? Everybody agreed. Yeah, you could, but what that would mean is that the love depended upon the wife's actions. It was a conditional love. So if the wife was faithful, and if she served you and cared for you, then you would love her. And then the translator said, well, could you DV you love your wife? And everybody laughed out loud. And the translators waited for some response. They said, well, no, of course you couldn't, because... What that kind of love is describing is a commitment to love even if your wife never did anything for you, committed an affair with other people, 
There is no way we would ever describe love in that way. We don't have a concept of love like that. Translators sat quietly for a moment. And then one of them said, Could God DVU love people? Silence in the room. And some of the committee, mostly the elderly men, started to weep. We don't understand what you're saying, they said. What you would be describing is a God who would choose to keep loving us for millennia after millennia, mistake after mistake, for everything that we have done wrong, simply because he wouldn't stop loving us. That's when the Hidi people first discovered the chesed love of God. And thousands of them became Christians. They discovered a love that isn't based on whether you deserve it or whether your circumstances are appealing. It is rooted in the unchanging character of God. But he doesn't just promise having rescued them to lovingly lead them. Part of his plan to protect and provide for them is that the story of what he's done at the Red Sea would spill out. other places. That's what's described in verses 14 to 16. On their journey to this promised land, other nations are going to hear about what God has done at the Red Sea. And this news is going to spread so far that the leaders, the people of places like Philistia and Edom and Moab, places where the Israelites aren't going to live, but they've got to get through in order to get to Canaan. They're going to hear this story, and it's going to terrify them. Now, we might think, I think you're overselling this a bit. There's just a load of people that died in, the, in a storm and some sea weather. Is that really something that's going to scare a load of other people that live hundreds of miles away? Well, let me tell you about the story of a lady called Rahab. She was a Gentile, meaning she wasn't a Jew. She lived in a city called Jericho, a city. The Israelites are pedestrian. They have no great force with them. They haven't got chariots. They are walking into the promised land. And 40 years later, some Israelite spies meet this lady, Rahab. And Rahab says to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Here is a lady in a fortified city saying, you lot standing over there on your little feet, terrify us. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Part of God's way of leading, providing, protecting his people was that this story of deliverance at the Red Sea would just spread like a shockwave around the Mediterranean so that nations like the city of Jericho in a fortified city that would, humanly speaking, be looked at and think, you are awesome, safe, and secure, are terrified of the people of God. He is protecting them on their journey. And that brings us to the final way God lovingly led his people. He led them all the way to himself. He is the end of the journey. Look in verse 13. 
God's unfailing love, his all-powerful strength, would lead the people to his holy dwelling. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. We don't know for definite whether Moses, by faith, he's looking forward to Mount Sinai, where God would appear and give his people the law. He's looking forward to the promised land, or he's even looking forward to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't really know. But actually, the specific geography is not the most important thing. What matters most is that God is bringing his people to him, to a living, personal relationship with the God of heaven and earth. That's the great goal of this song. That's why Exodus 15 is such an incredible song of rescue. But what does it mean for us today? All of these events took place, I don't know, three and a half or something thousand years ago. Is there anything more here for us than an ancient history lesson? Well, to answer that question, I want to take you to the very end of your Bible. It's the book of Revelation and chapter 15. Revelation is a book that God gave to the Apostle John as a series of visions showing him how the end of the world would come about, how God would draw to a close all of history and would recreate a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sin or suffering or dying or fear. And lots of these details are full of imagery and uh, symbolism that it's hard for us to fully understand. But there are details in these three verses I want to read to you that are so specifically tied to our passage. I think we can work through the big idea. Revelation 15 verses 2 to 4. And I saw what looked like the sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over that number of its name, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb, meaning Jesus. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There's a lot of detail that we don't need to get into. I need you to see the big picture. God has rescued his people. They are singing a new song, and they are singing beside the sea. They are singing the song of God's servant Moses. And their song is full of the same themes of the song of Moses in Exodus 15. What Revelation 15 is showing you is that the God of Exodus 15 never changes. He is always and shall always be the uniquely majestic and glorious God of heaven and earth. He is the one who will judge all nations, not just the Egyptians, but all nations will come and worship before him and he will lead his people home. There they are, they're pictured beside the sea with him, singing. Which means that we have one supremely important question to ask. Am I, are you, ready to meet 
the unchanging God. Am I, are you, one of his rescued and redeemed ones or one of his enemies? Now, lots of people try to answer that question themselves. They create their own subjective comparative religion scale because it's actually relatively easy, whoever you are and whatever you may have done in your life, to look at somebody else who is not as loving or as kind or as generous. And you might be able to say, well, if I look at that person or those people, surely God is going to look at me as better than them and therefore I'll be okay. The problem is they are not the scales that the God of heaven and earth uses to judge all people. God is the creator of all things. He is the uniquely glorious one, which means the Bible teaches all that we do that is wrong and evil in this world, the things that we think, let alone the things that we say and do, are ultimately what the Bible calls sin and rebellion against him. And that means that we all have a problem. This is how the Apostle Paul explained our situation to a church in Ephesus. He wrote this, as for you, he's speaking here to Christians, but he's describing what their life was like before they became Christians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying, meaning doing, the the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Left to ourselves, there's no them and us. Left to ourselves, we are all deserving of wrath which is not how we like to think of ourselves, but we're getting a glimpse into how the God of heaven and earth shows us our real situation. And it's true for all of us. In another one of his letters, Paul writes this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And perhaps even most scarily of all, he says later in that same letter that the wages of that sin, that the consequence of that sin is death. Not just physical death, which is horrible enough, but eternal spiritual death under the just judgment of God. Spiritually speaking, we're in the same situation the Israelites were in. We are so stuck, we cannot possibly help ourselves. What we need is a substitute. We need someone who can change everything. We need someone who can be born without having our sin problem in themselves so that they could live the life that we couldn't live. But that's not enough. We need somebody who having done that would be willing to die the death that we deserve to die because we're all, as we've just seen, born and by choice, 
rebelling against God. So we would need somebody who'd be willing to die and take the punishment for our sin. But even that's not enough. Because not only would he need to be fully human in order to do that, to die in our place, if he's to save more than one person, he would need to be fully divine to take the punishment for many, many people upon himself. And where can anybody like that be found? Where could somebody who is completely perfect, who is both fully man and fully divine, who would willingly live a perfect life in our place, die the death that we deserved to die, so that we could be freed, not from the Egyptians who had us in slavery, but from the just judgment of God that we otherwise deserve. Now you're asking a question you can only ask because of the Bible. And the answer can only be found in the Bible, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who could possibly meet all of those criteria. He is the only one who, having lived in all eternity past with the Father and the Spirit, would willingly come, suffer, bleed, and die in our place to take the punishment for our sin so that we could know forgiveness. And because he has done that, Jesus is the reason Christians sing. You might have come this morning and thought, you guys do a lot of singing. It's not the kind of thing you normally do. If you go to a football game, a rugby game, people will sing and cheer and all that kind of stuff. But it tends to be a little bit more just about that. This all seems very personal. This is, you mean this. And we do. We mean it because we're reacting to the greatest salvation that has ever happened. Not that we've been physically brought from captivity, but that the Son of God has willingly given his life for my sinful, dirty soul. He's made me a son of God. Jesus proves all of that. Now, if you're here for the very first time, there might be a thousand questions in your head. Given all that we've thought about, the journey that we've gone on from ancient history into the future, But can I encourage you to bring one question to the center of your mind? Because if you answer this one, it changes everything. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Because if he is, Jesus proves how serious sin is. Because the only way a sinful person like me or any of the parents that you saw up, Ollie, any of the Christians in this room, the only way any of us could have been saved is through the perfect, sinless Son of God coming to die in our place. Jesus proves, if he really is who he says he is, that his sacrifice is enough because he didn't stay in the tomb. You can't go and visit any part of the Middle East and see the burial grave of Jesus and know that his body is decaying in that space because he's not there. He's risen and is reigning with the Father in heaven, waiting to return. And because he has risen, Jesus proves that we need not fear death. Because if you trust and believe in him, you are trusting in the one who has conquered death, who is living now with the Father, and who will bring us safely home. 